In fact, we are just as natural as anything else. We are a dream of the Earth as much as anything else mm -hmm. ever in the history of evolution, uh, terrestrial life on this planet. We are an emergent phenomenon that isn't going anywhere mm. until it's time for us to go somewhere. Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who is made out of Earth. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today I'm talking with artist, author, poet, and eco-philosopher Obi Kaufman, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we discuss humanity's relationship with the Earth, Mount Diablo daisies, ways in which meaning is co-constructed, biodiversity, what a myth really is, very quiet lions, how we relate to place, and how telling a better story about this land we love, this place now known as California, might just help humans come together to care for it. A quick heads up that this episode is number nine out of 12 for season three. So there are just three episodes left after this one before I take a break between seasons so I can get out into the field and record more interviews for season four, which is already starting to come together in some really exciting ways. I'll tell you more about that in another episode soon, so stay tuned for updates. And before the end of season three, we still have some fantastic episodes, including a conversation with Crystal Hickman on native bees. That will be coming up next, so make sure you're following the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss it. I also want to take a second to thank everyone who's supporting the show on Patreon, which is so appreciated and allows me to keep doing this work. You can join the Patreon community for as little as $4 a month and enjoy bonus content from Select Episode, a patrons-only book club each month, and the ability to submit your questions to be asked in interviews. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash michellefulner. That's Michelle with two L's, and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. And if you listened to the recent New Year's bonus episode, you already know that I have recently released a set of six California nature-themed Valentines featuring artists who have been guests on Golden State Naturalist, including today's guest, Obi Kaufman. Obi's Valentine is a map of California fault lines painted by Obi with the words, I love you, faults and all. And the whole set of Valentines is wonderful and beautiful and delightfully corny. So go check those out at love.goldenstatenaturalist.com. This project is rad for three reasons. One, you get these super high quality Valentines. Two, each purchase supports me in creating new episodes. And three, 10% of the profit from this project will be donated directly to CalWild, which is the only statewide organization dedicated solely to protecting and restoring the wild places and native biodiversity of California's public lands. It's a win all around. So again, you can find those at love.goldenstatenaturalist.com or by following the link in the show notes. But now let's get to the episode. Obi Kaufman is the author of the best-selling book, The California Field Atlas the first in a series of bestsellers, which includes The State of Water, Understanding California's Most Precious Resource, The Forests of California, The Coasts of California, and most recently, The Deserts of California. He's currently working on his sixth book, The State of Fire, Understanding Why, Where, and How California Burns, which will be published by Heyday Books this fall. Obi's books have received multiple awards, including the California Book Awards Gold Medal in 2018 for notable contribution to publishing. Obi is an engaging public speaker, co-host of the Place and Purpose podcast, and one of the kindest human beings any of us could hope to meet. So without further ado, let's hear from Obi Kaufman on Golden State Naturalist. I met up with Obi last spring, almost at the top of Mount Diablo. We parked our cars near a large expanse of chaparral, where we were awash in the intermingling aromas of black sage and ceanothus in full bloom, then made our way through an area wooded with gray pines and the unmistakable home scent of California bay trees, out to a patch of grassland bejeweled with wildflowers. I'll let Obi set the scene. Can you believe where we are right now? No. Can you just tell us what we're looking at? You describe it we, we're in the very center of the bee's home. We are surrounded by thousands and thousands of wildflowers. This is the late April bloom on Mount Diablo inside of Mount Diablo State Park. We are now at about 3,000 feet. We have, we have the blue dicks and the California poppies making this contrasting blue and orange statement that's very profound. 
but to the painter's eye, you know, there's there's a million other color relationships mm. in this larger story. Oh, what is that? Is that a Stellar's Jay over there? It looks yeah. like it. Uh, we have a, this beautiful yellow flower, Diablo Daisy, everywhere. Also, we have piles of gray pine cones, yes. you know, just the biggest cone in the pine family, right? Just these watermelon-sized, like, like <laughs> vicious-looking pine cones stacked up, making this, like, silver background, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got we've got the poison oak on the edges doing mm-hmm. their rust-colored thing, being very respectful to be on the, on the outskirts in the meadow here. God, it is magical yeah. out here. I'm yes. almost at a loss for words. This is the kind of space you just want to like sit. It's it's fun to talk with you, but it's also fun to not talk. Yeah. There's all kinds of reptiles in the ground, all kinds of all kinds of vertebrates and invertebrates all around us. It's Elysium. It's heavenly up here. Mm-hmm. It's funny too that like we're in the middle of the Bay Area. Right. You know. Yeah. Like, this is such a funny little like gem of wilderness. Yeah. We'll get back to the field of wildflowers and my conversation with Obi after a quick break. If you're listening to this episode, you're hearing from one of the most influential ecological storytellers of our time. Obi Kaufman's best-selling field atlases are packed with stunning watercolor paintings and rich with details about California's vast and varied wildlife. These books captivate me, and I want to tell you about their publisher, Heyday Books, which also happens to be my very favorite publisher. Celebrating 50 years of publishing, Heyday is a fiercely independent publisher since 1974, working to amplify voices across the Golden State. They publish a range of books about California, including lots of work on California's natural world. If you want to learn about California, Heyday is your publisher. And now you can be part of that by becoming a Heyday member. Heyday members receive a curated selection of Heyday books, ebooks, and access to exclusive Heyday events and merch. Sign up today and you'll receive a copy of The Deserts of California, a discount code for 50% off of Obi's other bestsellers, The Coast of California and The Forest of California. And if you add the word golden to the how did you find us section, you'll also receive a bandana designed by Obi himself at no extra cost. Your membership fee goes directly to supporting the publication of beautiful and important books. To enjoy the perks of Heyday membership, visit heydaybooks.com membership or find the link in the show notes. Don't miss out on this opportunity to explore the magic of California's deserts with Obi Kaufman's masterpiece and become a valued member of Heyday. Again, that's heydaybooks.com membership. Welcome back. Today's conversation takes place on Mount Diablo with Obi Kaufman. This is your home mountain, so yeah. I want to hear about your relationship with Mount Diablo. Thank you. Yeah, not enough. My relationship is particularly modern in one sense, mm-hmm. right? Like this is unceded Tatkan land. You know, this is on the on the west side of Mount Diablo. We've got uh, the Tatkan people's ancestral homeland, and then on the east side, we've got we've got the Volvon people, right? And and Diablo is sort of a funny word too, isn't it? Very. You know, as, as, as a kid. Growing up, loving rock and roll, I sort of liked that. It, I, <laughs> my favorite place was Devil Mountain, but you know, Tushtiok is the is the Vovon name for this mountain, and which I think sounds better. I found the story of how Mount Diablo got its name on a sign near the summit after Obi and I had finished talking, and of course, I took a picture of it because this story contains so many elements of the last few hundred years of California history. I'm going to read this right from my photograph and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Okay, here we go. The reference to Diablo or devil can be traced back to 1804 or 1805, when a Spanish military expedition visited the area in search of runaway mission Indians. At a willow thicket several miles northeast of here, near present-day Buchanan Field, the soldiers encountered a village of Chupcan people and surrounded it. But that night, evidently all of the Indians escaped. Angry and confused, the Spanish called the site Monte del Diablo, or Thicket of the Devil. Later, English-speaking newcomers mistakenly assumed the word monte to mean mountain, and applied the title to this prominent East Bay peak. A linguistic accident thus gave California its Devil Mountain. Vitally, of course, this history only stretches back a few hundred years, and humans have had a relationship with this place for tens of thousands of years. So this story, and most of the stories we hear for that matter, barely scratch the surface of the story of humans in California. A page on the Save Mount Diablo Land Trust website points out that the Spanish-imposed removal of the Volvone people severed a pivotal piece of stewardship impacting the evolution of the area, human beings and the role they play as chief stewards of the land. 
You can hear a little bit about indigenous land relationships if you listen to the California Condors episode of this podcast with Yurok Tribe Wildlife Department Director Tiana williams Clausen. And condors are part of the Mount Diablo story, too. So this is condor land, too, right? In the 80s, when I was growing up on Mount Diablo, I knew that there was a particular quality of nature here. But in general, I sort of felt like nature was something that was going away, mm. you know, mm-hmm. or something that I missed. Yeah. And I think the condor were really emblematic of that being, you know, down to, you know, a scant more than a dozen individuals, right? right? Very tiny genetic pool. Now there's over 500 condors representing this resurgence. And now I'm like inside of this gorgeous ethical horizon almost where I can foresee a day where I will be able to see a condor flying over my beloved mountain here, you know? Okay, this is wild. Just a few months after we recorded this conversation, a flock of California condors entered Contra Costa County for the first time in over a hundred years. One of them flying about a mile west of Mount Diablo Summit, which is almost exactly where Obi and I sat for this conversation. So I will now forever imagine this place and this conversation with a condor soaring overhead. Hopefully, this means the birds are expanding their range northward from their home in Pinnacles National Park. It certainly makes a Mount Diablo with condors easier to imagine. So, so you know, back in the, in the 19th century, there were a lot of, as Robin Walt Kimmerer would put it, more, more than human kin. Mm-hmm. That have that have since been extirpated from this place. Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote the book Braiding Sweetgrass, which I have recommended 1,000 times on this podcast. This was very much habitat for the California grizzly, mm. many different types of anadromous fish. And, you know, and I also think of the dwindling, dwindling populations of local amphibians, for mm. example, mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. salamanders and newts. And, but we, we still have... The entire botanical complement, I think, yes. as as is as is evident here today, with which, this incredible floral biodiversity, huh? Which, which means that those animals can come back, right? To some extent. Well, you know, I mean, talking about uh, condor returning, for example, mm-hmm. the turkey vultures do their job. They have mm-hmm. a very specific ecological role to play. The cleanup crew, condor, are much the same kind. You know, these relics of a Pleistocene era when the megafaunal food portfolio was not really as it is in the Anthropocene here today. You know, there were, there were herds of elk yeah. here, you know, Thule elk, for example, these enormous ungulates that, 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 you know, aided the, the human stewards in the land to, to keep the meadows free of encroaching pines, for example. And it would be a lot of work and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to rebuild the complex system necessary for the reintroduction of like a bear, like mm-hmm. an apex predator like mm-hmm. that. With the floral biodiversity that Obi mentioned, you have one component of what's needed for the animals to come back. Because native plants, as Naomi Fraga of the Native Plants episode put it, are the building blocks of all terrestrial ecosystems. However, as Obi points out here, plants alone can't bring back and sustain these big animals. They have other needs that have been removed from the land as well. One thing that comes to mind, in general, not just on Mount Diablo, is connectivity. Fragmented populations locked on small bits of habitat, separated by roads and other barriers, can't always get their needs met, either in terms of food or of finding potential mates. And with his tule elk example, Obi points to a system that's out of balance in ways that might not be able to support all of the life that was once on Mount Diablo, even if the native plants remain. Now the apex predator on this mountain is a, is there a little local lion. Mm-hmm. And I've seen many of them up here. Have you? Uh-huh. And it's always an experience. Because yeah. whenever you see a mountain lion, it's her decision to show herself. Yes. I am sure that I have walked within inches or feet of many, many lions. There's, they, they become invisible. They are silent. They are the most silent creatures. They do, their survival depends on it. And the fact that they're still here is, is evidence of that, like, that superpower that they have, really. So, so if you ever see a mountain lion, it's by their choice. At least I'm convinced of that. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Yeah, right. I believe right. that. So that's the backdrop, right? That's the setting. And that's the history of this place. How do you think that it had an impact on you? 
when you were coming up to to have access to this space and to be here right 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 well it's kind of like a zoom lens isn't it like we can we can like go to specific details or we can back up back Uh up further into greater and greater contexts for how this place exists right because mount diablo is a vortex for all of california not only is it Mm. one of california's largest view sheds Mm -hmm. right the the mount diablo meridian is one of the the geographic features that the cartographic features i should say that were that were involved in the invention of the borders of the state. In July of 1851, less than a year after California became a state, a Colonel Leander Ransom, deputy surveyor of the new state, hiked through brush and a particularly hot summer to the summit of Mount Diablo. According to a brochure from the state park, Ransom established Mount Diablo as the initial reference point for land surveys and began dividing up public lands. From this starting point, lines extending north, south, east, and west formed a survey grid that covers most of Northern California and all of Nevada, the basis of today's land survey system. I looked at a map of this system, and Mount Diablo was the first of three of these reference points to be used in California, and it was the one covering the most land by far. The other two were on San Bernardino Mountain in San Bernardino County, that reference point established in 1852, and Mount Pierce in Humboldt County, established in 1853, according to an article from the Mount Diablo Surveyors Historical Society. So Mount Diablo is an incredible vantage point from which to see much of California. And it makes a lot of sense to me, given his connection to the place, that Obi would work to develop in his mind a sort of cartographic habit and end up creating so many gorgeous maps of California in his books, which we'll talk more about a little bit later. Here's a bit more about what you can see from the summit from Obi. You can see the entirety of the Sierra Nevada range, all 400 miles of North America's longest contiguous mountain range, you know. And and California just seems to make sense from up here. You can sort of see Mm. across all of these different ecographies, really. And so now, because it kind of sticks out like a geologic anomaly, really, into the Central Valley, Mm -hmm. catching seeds, we're talking about wildflowers today, Mm -hmm. catching seeds from the Pacific Northwest, from the desert Southwest, along its south-facing sides there. And so... When I was young, what I had here was this microcosm hmm. of diversity, really realizing at an early age that as greater diversity equals greater resiliency, you know, mm. the fires that come through. This place was sculpted by fire, mm. continues to be sculpted by fire, and biologically sculpted, ecologically sculpted by fire, and it always rebounds after that wound you know after after the application of that good fire it comes back stronger Mm. the land gets shocked with the fertilizer that these seeds have evolved inside of and it was always such a soulless a contrast from the urban or suburban existence that i grew up in coming Mm. back here was a retreat into the real Mm. so that's a big theme in my work is that nature is a construct. Mm-hmm. Nature is a commodity. Here I experience something much better than nature. Mm-hmm. I don't go to another place. Mm-hmm. I come to what can be thought of as like a symbiotic real. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Let's capitalize S, capitalize R. Okay, so philosopher Timothy Morton coined this term symbiotic real. And I'll read you a definition from the website cyberbiomes.org that aligns with what I was able to find out about this term in other places. It says the symbiotic reel is, quote, a term used by Timothy Morton to describe the inseparable connection and participation of humans in the context of the wider ecosphere. It implies a non-hierarchical solidarity of humans with non-humans. And it stems from the critique of the use of the word nature, which arbitrarily separates humans from the rest of the living systems surrounding us, unquote. So it's basically this idea that humans aren't separate from what we call nature. As many indigenous peoples have known forever, we're part of the earth. And using the term nature reinforces that false idea of separation. Now, I've been training myself to think like this for the past couple of years, because of course, it's more accurate. We are completely a manifestation of life on Earth, not something separate or different from the Earth. And I want to change my language to reflect this idea. But I still find it hard to avoid using the word nature, because people know what I mean when I say it. It's a convenient shorthand for the world that is outdoors, less built, and more rich with species adapted to live in a given place. 
but saying all of that each time is a bit of a mouthful. So I haven't quite figured out how to talk about this or even totally how to think about it, given a lifetime of conditioning to think about humanity and nature as two separate things. But I'm working on it, and Obi's helping me. He gives a great example here. To quote Pandora Thomas, who is leading a land stewardship movement or is is part of a land stewardship movement in the North Bay on the the Great Rancheria, the the southern Pomo and coastal Miwok land up there. Pandora Thomas is the founder and farm manager of Earthseed Farm and Permaculture Center. Here's the description of Earthseed from their website. Established in March 2021, Earthseed Farm is a 14-acre solar-powered organic farm and orchard located on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo peoples in Sonoma County, California. With the permission and blessings of Great and Rancheria Tribe, our farm is operated and rooted in Afro-Indigenous permaculture principles and built on the long legacy of earth wisdom traditions of people of African descent. Permaculture is a relationship-based ecological design system embedded in Indigenous wisdom that elevates ecosystem health while maintaining human needs. And this beautiful project is packed with purpose. According to an LA Times article on Earthseed, Thomas, a Berkeley-based naturalist and environmental educator, wants to teach her fellow Black Californians to use their African-American heritage to usher their communities and all of humanity through the climate crisis. There's so much more to learn about Earthseed, so I encourage you to check out their website, earthseed.org, and maybe even plan a visit. Just make sure to check when they're open. And if you're wondering if Earthseed is a reference to science fiction icon Octavia Butler's novel, The Parable of the Sower, I was wondering that too, and it 100% is. And if you haven't read The Parable of the Sower yet, it's very relevant to our time, and I highly recommend it. Also, excitingly, Pandora Thomas is going to be the March guest on Obi Kaufman's podcast, Place and Purpose, which he co-hosts with Greg Saris, chairman of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria. So make sure you're following that show so you get notified of new episodes and can hear the conversation with Pandora when that comes out. Okay, so Obi was just about to quote Pandora when I cut in and gave you like 20 homework assignments. I'm so sorry, but I promise you'll thank me if you follow up on even one of them. To quote her, she says, we are the environment. Mm. And I'm so drawn to that way of thinking where we are ecological creatures. Not only is there like, there's space for healing Mm. inside of Mm -hmm. that and forgiveness too, as we attempt every day just to do better, Mm -hmm. as opposed to every day punish ourselves for some, for our, for our ecological sins. Right. Well, and othering has always been a tool of genocide, Mm. right? You other yourself from the natural world, mm. then you can extract endlessly, you can kill it, right? Oh, I think that's that's a wonderfully inclusive point there, Michelle. You know, how do we uh, take down these assertions of what nature is or what it isn't in order such that we might better be in a reciprocal relationship mm. with with not only the the living world but there's also like the spatial world the temporal world if you will like be at peace with the future with our future ancestors with the responsibility that we have to them Mm. and to ourselves as you know one day we'll be ancestors to them Mm. so engaging that intersectional space of human identity human justice as it plays out across the larger pattern inside of what increasingly becomes rather irrelevantly known as environmentalism mm, mm-hmm. uh, because it is attached to everything else. It has to be. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that also frees us from these philosophical pitfalls of anti-humanism that is, that is a particular vein of thinking about conservation, preservation, in terms of, of biodiversity, especially, where we are the problem, when in fact we are just as natural as anything else. We are a dream of the earth as much as anything else mm-hmm. ever in the history of evolution, or terrestrial life on this planet. We are an emergent phenomenon that isn't going anywhere <laughs> until it's time for us to go somewhere. So Mount Diablo for me has always afforded me a place, enough space, enough color, enough life where thinking thoughts like this comes <laughs> very naturally. It's of no effort that we can make conclusions about our our loving relationship to this place mm. and respectful attitudes towards it. And it's nothing short of a miracle that this is, in fact, still here. 
At this point, Obi and I had been sitting in the open grassy fields in direct sunlight, occasionally turning ourselves like rotisserie chickens to avoid burning for long enough. And we decided to move the conversation to a shaded picnic table at an empty campsite. We pick up our conversation there. So here we are, here we are, two non-Indigenous people talking about land quality, mm. land justice, and, and what right do we have to engage this conversation without other voices necessarily being present mm. here. You know, I hope, I hope the best that we can do is acknowledge that and then to amplify that voice through, through the retelling of this message. Mm. Mm-hmm. So all of us are impacted by the way we treat the land. And everyone should be included in conversations about the land, our relationship with it, and its use. I appreciate Obi acknowledging the absence of indigenous voices in particular in this conversation. So as you listen, just remember that this is but one conversation and is not intended to be the be-all, end-all conversation on these topics. Rather, I hope this conversation is one point of inspiration for deeper connection with and knowledge of the place where you live. Also, you might have noticed a low buzzing sound in the recording, and I'm here to let you know that this only lasts for about one minute and then is done. I'm pretty sure it was caused by my wired mics, so I want to thank my patrons for allowing me now to have upgraded to wireless mics, so we don't have this problem again in the future. You're the best. So, you know, it's an interesting thing, the sacredness of this place. You know, sacred is a, is a, is a word that I have a very difficult time yeah. with. You know? I grew up without any bit of religion in my life. Both my parents were scientists. You know, father was an astrophysicist. My mother was a psychologist. So mm-hmm. I grew up with this really large sense of human perspective. Right. And so because of that, I tend to put a lot of faith in sort of this quasi-academic style of talking about mm. these subjects mm. mm-hmm. and placing them in patterns of theory that can uh, sort of be cubbyhold, if you will, for different ways of interpreting reality, especially that reality that, how do I put this, blows one apart, right? Mm. That, that mm. The beauty, the sublimation, the transcendence that I feel in nature, mm-hmm. connecting with the land, with the symbiotic real, becoming ecological in my heart. Mm-hmm. And on our hike, you were mentioning that the colonizing mind, right? The settling mind, the settling of the land, the colonization of the land, the colonization of the people that I am attempting to, by way of my work, uncouple from, mm-hmm. if I can, mm-hmm. right? I never, I mean, the mountain has always been my people. Mm. I, I was kind of a lonely kid, you know, in the woods, drawing maps through the sage mazes, you know, yes. naming the big old oak trees, you know, yeah. uh, and, and they were my friends. They were my people. I identified as one of them, among them. I felt forgiven. I felt mm. safe. I felt, I mean, there was something almost like, you know, Eden-like, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And in my adult life, realizing what an incredible privilege that was mm-hmm. in order to be able to find that space, to be given the permission to find that space here right. by myself to find, and then, and then to, and then to find that my identity, my adult identity in that. You know, I think that, you know, although my works are about the, the theologies, if you will, theologies, <laughs> the study not of theology. things, not theology, <laughs> theologies, that's right. pluralizing ology, which is the, which of course is the suffix to the study of anything, right? Or like one, one of the big ones, whether it's biology, geology or whatever, but, but one of the big ones for me is cartography mm. and what the, the getting to know the place on a spatial level, mapping it out however you want. It might, it might, it might be more than just space. Of course, it might be energy if we're talking about ecology or it might be uh, time if we're mm. talking about geology mm-hmm. or maps of self in fact it might be a map of a well-rendered bat face that mm. i put in watercolor mm-hmm. right that is a map of sorts mm-hmm. right a map of this particular moment in evolutionary time mm-hmm. and capturing that in this aesthetic dimension has great meaning for me and in fact touches something like the mythic Mm-hmm. Something like the sacred, where inside of this aesthetic theory, I have access to those parts of me that are at once animal, but also something else, something mm-hmm. human, mm-hmm. something symbolic, something able 
to grasp, render, apprehend, and convey symbolism. If you're not familiar with Obi's work, particularly his field atlases, here's a little rundown. So these are big, thick books filled with a very aesthetically pleasing balance of watercolor paintings and text. And the paintings include lots of maps of just about every conceivable aspect of the place that we call California. Things like mountain ranges, public lands, bodies of water, distributions of different species, hot springs, dams, even unexpected things like light pollution and California during the Pleistocene. He also includes paintings of landscapes and plant and animal species. So the books contain specific, accurate, geographic, and ecological information, but portrayed from a perspective, with a voice. They're not dryly academic. So in this conversation, when we talk about storytelling, we're not talking about fictional narratives or a made-up story about California. We're talking about how Obi tells the true story of California, or a true story of California, or many true stories of California, through his own lens and with the tools of his words and his paintings. All of these aspects of California come together in the field atlases to tell a complex yet very accessible story about this place. In presenting all of these aspects of place together, Obi has created a rich, multi-layered story of California. So as you do that in the field atlas series yeah. and in your essays and in your other work, right. to what degree are you... Are you abstracting and are you finding that greater truth and are you mythologizing? Right. Right. And to what degree are you conveying facts? How do you kind of find that balance and what does that mean to you? Right. Conveying facts. Facts. Facts is an interesting word. Mm. You know, Shelley said that, that, that poets are the secret adjudicators of the world. Mm. Right. And so I think of like Gary Snyder, one of my, one of, one of my, one of my heroes, mm. right, where he talks about the circumambulation of peaks, walking around the peak as an access point. And he was talking about it particularly from a, a Japanese, a Zen experience mm. mm -hmm. of, of becoming of and with the mountain, circumambulating the peak. And he also talks about an artist's relationship to activism, mm. and namely that I, I think to quote him directly, he says that activism must always be second, if at all relevant hmm. to the art being produced. Mm -hmm. And I, hmm. I will take his lead on that. I don't want my work to be associated necessarily with direct activism as, say, Ursidas is doing on, in the land trust, in mm -hmm. the land back movement. That's not my voice that's not my story to tell, mm -hmm. right? My story to tell is this, again, these, the, if, if I get the parameters right, if I get the language right, and I'm very careful in my words because I really want, I want to sort of make this infinitely defensible space around the brand of my voice, mm -hmm. if you will, mm -hmm. and to not misrepresent some other's voice. Mm -hmm. There's there's a funny, when I, when I first started uh, writing the California Field Atlas and I didn't know exactly what that voice was, <laughs> right? Now I've just finished my fifth book, you know, and so, so we're, we're just rocking, we're rocking right along. Yeah. And I feel like I've kind of got this down. Yes. But when I first started writing the California Field Atlas, I had grand hopes of like, as an expression of solidarity, I wanted to rename many of California's places or reclaim or help to reclaim with the original quote unquote, original indigenous names mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as I would research them. Mm -hmm. And my editor, Lindsay Bear, who's an indigenous person herself, was like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, one, she, I mean, she's pressing it in this. She says, one, you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. And two, that's not your story to tell. And I, uh, and that was such a weight. It was a door mm -hmm. opened for me. Yeah. yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. it was, it was like, just do this. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so here we are on my mountain home, my home mountain, mm -hmm. Mount Diablo, where I, I feel it's the center of the universe. It's my axis mundi, right? Axis mundi, the, 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 the hub of the world, the whole world spins around here. For me, it always has. Mm -hmm. It's the center of the cosmos. My father, I mentioned, was an astrophysicist. He had the actual cosmos. Uh. He uses a metaphor to, for his inquiry into 
a relationship with the symbiotic real. Mm-hmm. Me, I had the microcosm that is not Diablo, and thereby was able to project out to the macrocosm that is California, because all of California is not, not Diablo. You know, I mean, inside the state parks, we don't have things like wetlands and, you know, that kind of thing, but we've got something that approaches the desert. We've got yeah. something that approaches the Pacific Northwest. We've got something that approaches the coastal woodlands. We've got, you know, we don't quite have like an alpine thing, so we don't, it's only, you know, 3,600 feet, so it's not, it's not that tall, but, but boy, in the gloriously, generously wet winter that was this past yeah, one yeah. here in, in the winter of uh, 2022, 2023, we've, we, we had snow on the mountain for over a month mm. and I've never seen that, you know, in wow. all 50 years of loving yeah. this mountain, I've never seen that, right? So that was something to behold. Right. So, as you can tell, my, my voice slides pretty easily between talking about the mountain and talking about myself. Absolutely. And also, the scale mm. on which you're talking, it reminds mm. me of that lens, right? Like, mm. you can zoom in and see the, you know, the petals on the Mount Diablo Daisy. Or you can zoom all the way out to the cosmos. And there's, what is the relationship, right? I'm endlessly fascinated by that, right? And as above, so below. As you look more into the microscope, you find more and more detail there. It's infinitely deep in both directions mm-hmm. at whatever level of scale that you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we interact with the world in a very medium scale over medium speeds within a specific human time span. But the mountain is unfolding. Is you know you see you see every leaf twitch in the wind at this particular moment, never to twitch exactly that way again. Mm-hmm. And yet, also, we were talking earlier about the ten million year history of this particular mountain. You can go back further, and there's a fossil ridge down there that has Cretaceous fossils mm-hmm. from from when this was underneath the sea, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, you know, going back thirty five. So we are experiencing the world at this grand singularity, this simultaneousness. And being able to apprehend that for just a moment approaches something to me that is, and this is this is where I dot 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 off into an ellipsis, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's spiritual. Mm-hmm. What the incredible quantity of life on this mountain and around the biosphere actually is and contains the variety of that life, that life, the infinite quality of mm-hmm. that life, is something that feeds on my work and in fact is the reason why I'm not a scientist and not an expert. Mm. I'm a generalist, I am a, and that, you know, you interact with this word naturalist mm-hmm. a lot, which is, is a very comfortable mm-hmm. word for me to, to, to wear, especially in regards to this mountain where it feels like all of the species of, of grass flowers Roots, flowers, and fruit all are more than human can, yeah. you know. And and so the, the friend of me, I am of this place. They are of me. In that way, Diablo offers this mirror to mm. some deeply affectionate core of me that shares its space. And if I can just keep going with that story, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll die a gratified mm, man, mm-hmm. you know, just keep, and, and that's the thing about the story though. It's, it's this, this magic water that, mm-hmm. that like, it's like this magic well that I keep drinking from. And the more that I drink from it, the more water there is, you know, it doesn't go away. It's right. not like I'm going to exhaust the knowledge or yeah. exhaust the things Cause you can look to closer learn or you can about zoom this out, ecology. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, yeah, you yeah, can go back in time, you can try to peer into the future. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 I could draw a thousand maps a day for the rest of my life and never tell even a bit of the story. Yeah. So what is that, what is that story for you? So how do you think about what a myth is? Is it the same as a story mm. or is it a kind of a story? Mm-hmm. What are mm-hmm. you talking about when you're talking about mythology? Well, I, place? I, 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 I'm very comfortable with the word myth too. Most people mm. hear the word myth and they're like, oh, you mean a lie? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. That's the second definition. Right, right. exactly. That's, <laughs> That's the not second the first definition. definition. Yeah. A myth is any story that connects you to the value of human experience. Mm. And we mm. call this meaning. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the value of our experience. And in that way, all myths from all people, whether we're talking about Jesus or we're talking about Odin or we're talking about 
all myths at one time, or even, you know, for that specific culture in that specific time and space, they were true in that they were metaphoric of the potential of human experience mm -hmm. and an inroad to meaning of that experience. And so that makes them true. Mm -hmm. And it's all, and it's that way why I, that's why I'm not like an atheist necessarily. Mm -hmm. like, right? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in a God, mm -hmm. but God is a thought that exists beyond the realm of being and non-being. <laughs> <laughs> Why yeah. can't we transcend yeah. existence too? Right. The world is under no obligation to make sense to you. Mm. You know? Absolutely. And and when I'm encountering these experiences out outside of myself, inside of myself, you know, that seems like a bad ripoff of a John Muir quote. The John Muir quote I think Obi's referencing here goes like this. I only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown. For going out, I found, was really going in. In every walk with nature, one receives far more than he seeks. The sun shines not on us, but in us. But when the, the greatest epiphanies, to use something like a James, you know, James Joyce talks about this a lot, the aesthetic arrest, hmm. when the eye of the universe perceives the thing of the universe and mm. the two remain one mm -hmm. in this kind of at one -ment, right? Atonement. Mm -hmm. Then we're exposed to a truth that is, gosh, here, here I am um, plugging the big academic philosophy words again, but I really feel like they're, they're apt, right? The, the, the uh, what I want to say is they're ontologically non-objective. Mm. Ontology is the study of how things exist mm -hmm. and objectiveness is the study of what is an object when are we talking about this table are we talking about california is california an object <laughs> is the biosphere an object is climate change an object mm. right mm -hmm. so like these these the philosopher timothy morton calls them hyper objects where mm. you can't quite encounter the size right. of these objects but they're objects that are that are everywhere imposing themselves on our subjective minds mm -hmm. all the time. And so interacting with this, with these models of reality right. is what I mean about mythologizing a space mm -hmm. uh, where particular perspectives are afforded us. Mm -hmm. Particular moments of insight seem to be better accessed through, you could say, the metaphor of ecology or botany or Mm. geography right you know uh, so so in in that way i keep coming back to mount diablo because i keep finding new things here but 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 i tell you as we were saying before california is full of places that we're just never going to get to yeah are you familiar with reader response theory it's a literary mm. criticism it's a this is my background mm. Mm. <laughs> i don't know philosophy keep going but this is a yeah, reader, yeah, this yeah. is a an a way of approaching literature mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and the theory basically goes that the author of a work and the reader are co-constructing meaning mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. you, you don't have the text mm -hmm. in a vacuum mm -hmm. because the text has to be interpreted through someone's mind mm -hmm. right and through someone's way of looking at the world in their perspective and so it kind of tell me if this relates to what you're saying if i'm summarizing it well oh, is yeah. that the 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 world mm -hmm. right this mm -hmm. objective right. reality is kind of like the text mm -hmm. and then we're the reader approaching that text mm. and we're co-creating with that objective reality and our mind this sense of oh meaning. that's very good michelle inside of this really sophisticated lexicon of symbology that's incredibly culturally culturally specific. Mm -hmm. I think of, you know, chasing Chumash paintings mm -hmm. around the San Inez Mountains when mm -hmm. I was in college. Mm -hmm. You know, just these big, beautiful mandalas painted, you know, 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. A lot of the specific narrative, narrative meaning, the, 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 the prose that might have described what exactly is being depicted mm -hmm has been lost, mm -hmm. but but a lot of it hasn't. And then too much people can, are re-encountering re their, their ancient myths because of these, there's thousands of art sites down there. But, you, but, but standing in front of these large, like anthropomorphic creatures that are vaguely human-like, or, or they seem to have like bodies with kind of like heads, kind of mm -hmm. like legs, kind of like wings uh, that exist in a space Finding these when I was in my 20s, I had no idea what I was like. What I did understand, though, is that I am standing in front of a piece of art 
that was made by an artist conveying something to their community about their relationship with the more than human world. Mm. Ah, mm-hmm. I do that. Right. You know? And then I'm thinking like, I wonder though, if I were to take that Chumash artist and show him one of my mm. watercolors of an eagle head that's just, you know, scratched out <laughs> and kind of abstract or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. if they would be as mystified <laughs> as I am looking at their art, yeah. as they would be looking at You didn't at capture mine. the eagle. What right? is that? Yeah, this is yeah. a smear on, what is this? You know, what is, you know, like, like that's, that's a, that doesn't look like. Right. How did you feel having that revelation? That, well, that, that cultural specificness is, is very important when parsing these, these qualities of expertise, right? Which is something that I'm always trying to deconstruct mm-hmm. in my work, right? I don't want to necessarily make textbooks about California nature, right. okay? Right. And I, I say things like, I don't want to leave you, I'm not going to leave you alone with the knowledge, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you on this journey. I'm inviting you to come on this journey where I'm figuring it out for myself too, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And this is very complicated stuff. I'm in love with biodiversity first. I really understand that biodiverse systems are resilient systems going forward with some sort of prescription wherein we leave California's natural world in better shape at the end of the 21st century than we left it at the end of the 20th century. We must work then to keep all of these pieces on the table. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's infuriatingly difficult to argue. Mm. So let's not argue it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, argument will just make divisiveness as far as um, you know the allocation of resources are concerned, say. you mm-hmm. know, Especially in California, we're talking about water, fire, whatever you're talking about. So what I then aim to do is to employ what I believe is the only technology that has ever changed anyone's mind ever about anything, mm-hmm. and that is the telling of a better story. The telling of a better story. And the telling of the better story, remembering our way forward, right? The re-engagement of these ancient systems of California, this California that abides, this California that is all still here. Right. How do we best attend to that? We're going to have to give a lot to indigenous ecological knowledge, traditional ecological knowledge. We're going to have to give a lot to scientific innovation, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. These, This is not necessarily my job at all. My job, if I had one, is the witnessing. Mm. The witnessing. Mm-hmm. The witnessing. Allowing myself to enter into the space of arrest, aesthetic arrest, where I am working to convey this desperate affection mm-hmm. that is, uh, I think, a valuable natural resource into its own right, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That I think that there is, there is discourse that in, in the applied arts that can, as you say, be made together between the viewer and the audience, where the meaning happens, where the value is witnessed, mm-hmm. where the thing that is precious, that is rare, where the living species, for example, is worthy, valuable, and necessarily integrated into this ancient language mm-hmm. that California speaks. And I think it's a really interesting and important thing that you're doing because mm-hmm. taking the scientific perspective that you grew up with, right? Mm -hmm. Coming at it from a scientific viewpoint and understanding kind of this objective reality and then distilling that into a story is something that humans are drawn to stories. And I think sometimes if, if we are just presented with bare scientific data and facts, right? If we're, if we're presented with those things, you see what happens there is people ignore that and they go to anecdote. Right. And they mm. rely on that because that's, mm. a, that's the closest thing mm. to a story that mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, my uncle saw this other thing happen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, that's, and I feel that anecdote can be very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that what you're doing that I really admire is, mm. is capturing and condensing and distilling in a very poetic way the way that mm. the, the, with the efficiency of a poet, mm-hmm. right? The way that those truths can come together into a story. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like... 
a way for, it's a way to replace anecdote. That's right. I think that's right. Yeah. It's like, it's like the primary news source. It's the, it's, it's the personal experience and engagement. And the first line of my first book in the California Field Atlas is that this is a love story, right? In my next field atlas, which was the forests of California, after I wrote the state of water, the forests of California, my first line was that this is a family album. Hmm. Okay. So like already from, from that book to the next book, the relationship has developed and matured just like a human relationship might where you fall in love and then the family Mm -hmm. maturing and developing into this, into this networked relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. In my third field atlas, the coasts of California, I opened it up to the temporal realm and realized that the book is an object mm. of that affection and called it a time capsule, mm. right? Mm-hmm. The coasts of before are not the coasts of now, are not the coasts that they will be. They're right? different this from is, when you wrote the book. Exactly. Right. Yeah, especially year. after these storms. It's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and then, and then for my last field atlas, which I just finished, which will be published by Heyday Books in the fall, The Deserts of California. The Deserts of California is now out and available both online and in every bookstore I've checked. The first line of that book is that this is an adventure story. Okay. So yeah. that's like, that's like where it goes, mm-hmm. right? Where finally you are so integrated into it that you're allowed to have fun with it mm-hmm. go have fun with the family now yeah 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 and and you know it's it's uh, the, that desert book is particular quality to it you know i don't make i don't make travel books i don't make right. tour guides you know i don't make road houses i don't really even tell you how to get anywhere you know like these books are just about <laughs> what, what they are is like a handbook of what i believe is is fostering a relationship that is akin to locality if not uh, indigenous in nature of course it's not that because it is made up of these modern political designations Mm -hmm. land designations with their borders and their fences which is its own story which is its own story that's right there's a lot of imagining going on in my field is imagining what it was and what it could be Mm by reading what is underneath there. So engaging this thing that is like a geographic literacy, this democratic exercise in knowing where you are, thereby knowing who you are. Mm. I sound like Wendell Berry. Your relationship to the place changes. The place changes and you change. And this, I think, Mm. is exactly what we're talking about. Past the blame past the guilt, past the trauma, letting the paradigm slip Mm. from something like industrialized fundamentalism or whatever we're doing Mm -hmm. towards this carbon-based economy into this new space that is speeding towards us, an ecological space where we are part of it. And this is a revolutionary space. This Mm -hmm. is a space that will redefine everything that we know from commodity to freedom, Mm -hmm. to wealth, to kinship. And you can already see it like light shining through and you can see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. I travel California all over. Uh, on the speaker series, on this book tour, you know, and, and this endless book tour that I seem to be on. But you know what <laughs> which, I mean? Which Ta- one? Talking yeah. to people in Fresno, San Diego, uh-huh. Crescent City, Truckee, Nevada City, San Francisco, Sonoma County, wherever I am, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what political affiliation you are. It doesn't matter any of the other sort of metaphysical assertions that we all walk around with, you know, the big bundle of things that I am. Mm-hmm. There's this emergent paradigm that rests in love for this place, this desire. No one, no one in California wants to see California degraded. Mm. No one does. Negotiating the finer details of that is what we get tripped up on. Right. And what and and what is so and what is so profitable for for corporate entities then to monopolize upon Mm. but the divisive rhetoric is very thin and i Mm. think and i think that i think that i maintain given all the hype 
that there is this abidance of hope mm. and will and togetherness that is that will institute a kind of justice that we have only yet begun to imagine. I have I have two things from that. Okay. One, the idea of being in a place and knowing who you are, right? Because yeah. of that place. I, that just resonates mm. so deeply with me. I remember the first time somebody said, just be yourself to me. Oh, that no. has always struck me as the most unhelpful advice. I think I was in like fourth or fifth grade. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, how can I be in myself? I'm not in an oak tree, <laughs> right? Like. This doesn't right. make sense yes. to me. I'm on a school playground mm-hmm. where I don't want to be, and I also am a lonely kid and don't mm-hmm. understand the other kids and what they're doing. And how can I be myself in this context? Yeah. This is not the place where I can be myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you just know where you are to know who you are. You also have to know when you are, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hanging out with Greg Saris doing this podcast of Place and Purpose, we talk a lot about the difference between what is now and what was sacred time. Mm-hmm. Sacred time when the animals were people, when the animals were characters, it's still happening Hmm. all around us. Mm -hmm. We are inside sacred time. Sacred time almost has something to do with eternity. Mm -hmm. Eternity has very little to do with time, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It's almost like the difference, and here we are talking mythological symbolism again, but it's almost the difference between the sun and the moon. Sun is always, always rises the same. It's outside of time, Mm -hmm. right? The moon though, exists in 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 the field of of temporality mm-hmm. where where the where the serpent sheds its skin and 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 where the woman has a has a bodily reflection of that as well mm-hmm. you know this this idea between eternal and everlasting everlasting is mm. a very long time but eternal has nothing to do with the field of time <laughs> so those two mythological constructs are 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 reflected in space in terms of like the 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 circle of everything whose circumference is everywhere and whose center is nowhere that leaves us with potentially an existential crisis when you're asked to be just yourself right without any sort of anchor <laughs> that means right? nothing to me thank you as opposed to being on the axis mundi right. on the on the hub of the world uh-huh. from from where all directions originate and that that also is inside of you. So studying patterns in the landscape remind us of these deeper inner identities mm-hmm. that navigate the difficult existential questions. And then the second point that I wanted to get to okay. is really reflected. In okay. a, uh, let me see if I can find the exact quote. It's somewhere okay. here. You had mentioned in the original field atlas, mm-hmm. kind of being afraid of presenting a too rosy greenwashed picture of the natural systems of California. Right. As stewards of this land, we are largely doing a poor job, and perhaps I have done more to warn of the threats our state faces on an environmental level. I am at peace with what I hope is an uplifting tone throughout the book, because that feeling is the feeling I get when I experience California's extensive nature, its biodiversity, its fathomless living networks. I am confident that those networks will survive us and our imposed ecology, and I am happy to introduce you to those networks as I know them to be. That's good. That still holds up. I wrote that, gosh, seven years ago? It's yeah. And it's beautiful, and I think that it, it, for me, creates a beautiful framework for reading the rest of the mm, book and good. understanding and, and kind of this form of communication of the story that you are telling. Right. Right, because I think that you're not ignoring the climate catastrophe and disruption, right? This, this imposed disruption. But the story that you're telling isn't about that. Right. No. No, it's about, it's about resiliency. It's about the study of paleoclimates and paleoecology in California mm-hmm. and, how they, and how those systems remain active today. Mm-hmm. But it also interfaces with the modern world, with modern... Californian society, the government of Sacramento, making <laughs> policies, making specific goals as if that's going to work. Okay. So I think, I think of the 30 by 30 plan. Mm-hmm. I think of Earth Day. Mm-hmm. I think of like writing cheap receipts to continue a particular quality of the status quo, right? Not Earth Day and 30 by 30, as noble as they are, and as much as I support them, mm-hmm. I'm very critical of how they do sequester the idea 
they sequester and they reinforce the idea of nature itself mm-hmm. as something apart mm-hmm. from the decisions that we make. And I'm not talking about turning on your car every day. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to feel bad mm-hmm. for driving your car. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, that's statistically insignificant, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is the way that we do things right now. And someday, you know, the cities of mankind will become something else. Mm-hmm. And we are working towards that. What I what I want you to do, what I want you to do is what I try and do myself, right? Sustain myself in terms of the consideration, the appreciation, the return, the grounding, the unpanicked the unpanicked attitude towards the natural world. This is mm. this is this is this is me having an imaginary conversation with somebody like Greta Thunberg, right? Mm. Where it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the future is not spent. Mm. The future is not written. The future is not over. Mm-hmm. The future is not dead. It's very important to not kill things before they die. Whatever those things are, they might be ideas. They might be there, there, there are precious entities in the world that are depending on us to not let go of our own stewardship. Mm. Remember California? In California, nature, nature hasn't existed for tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Everywhere it's been stewarded by a lot of people right. doing a lot of things <laughs> everywhere. <Right. laughs> you know, there is no nature. In California, there has always been reciprocal ecological relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and between humans and the more than human kin. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really attracted to that phraseology and, by Kimmerer. Yes, and I think that what you're doing here too is kind of going after the concept that keeps us separated, right? Mm-hmm. That the false construct that keeps us separated. Because as long as we think that way, whether we're aware of climate disaster and all that or not, we're continuing the same patterns because we're continuing the same worldview. That's right. And so if you can change the worldview, you don't have to focus on climate catastrophe because then you change the paradigm and we, we naturally shift. Right? That's so beautiful. We change Michelle. our behaviors. We change our behaviors. That's so beautiful. And you know what I'm doing right now? Is I'm not I, I'm listening and I'm following, for example, the the uh, Black queer Indigenous community mm-hmm. and the land. Tra- I'm listening to them. Mm-hmm. I am learning from them. I am putting them first. Mm-hmm. I, everything that I'm saying here is an echo of of what I've heard mm-hmm. in terms of my own voice. So it's not it's not exactly an echo, mm-hmm. you know, because it's very yeah. it's very important. It's very important to like to draw this line very carefully. And what I mean by that is like to offer no complacency. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not saying that that there is not a desperate dance being danced. Mm-hmm. I want to avoid the use like I want to avoid the use of the word like fight, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or like trauma inducing. This sure. is this is let's let this be a dance. Mm-hmm. Let's let it unfold. Let's let it unfold in a healthy exercise of expression as opposed to a a a antagonistic confront with ourselves mm-hmm. where we're finger wagging crying behind a podium saying how dare you it's like okay okay yes we have a lot of trauma mm-hmm. it's on the land these last 200 years have been devastating but all the pieces are still here that's mm-hmm. the miracle to Stuart mm-hmm. and the resurgence is everywhere mm-hmm so plug into that energy. Yeah. Plug into that energy. And that, I mean, that's the thought that gets me up at five in the morning to get to work on these big, big <laughs> yes. books, you know, to yeah. engage that, to participate in that. Yeah. The, the, the future, the future is unfolding and is more beautiful than we can know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I don't want to take all of your time. Oh my gosh. Look it's at got that. so it's late. Been, it got it's so been. late and you got to go. My last question is just what about I mean, you've, you've made so many of these books now. You're going to mm. work on another. Mm. You, you've got so much more ahead of you. What about this work or just being in a place like this still mm-hmm. takes your breath away? Mm. How to best answer that question, Michelle? Well, what I want to do is I want to I I go somewhere else. Like, I want to go to, like, one of my favorite 
one of my favorite adventure stories ever is Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I still watch those movies and read those books over and so over much. again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. Right, right, right. Just finished a fellowship in, a couple weeks ago. In fact, when I, when, I, when, I was, when I was pitching my book to my publisher, I included Tolkien's little map of, of, of Middle Earth with the trees over here and the mountains over there and that kind of thing. And it's like, I want to do that for a place that has more adventure, more romance, more monsters, <laughs> crazy creatures. Millions of them. <laughs> monsters. Uh, you know, I, I, I use that word affectionately. Right. Monsters are, I know, they're just mis- misunderstood ecological agents. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, th- those poor trolls. Mm-hmm. You know, so the adventure, the, the rhapsody, the romance for here is endlessly tappable mm-hmm. and, and constantly resurgent. And of a different character throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And and so the changing face of this living world is always welcome, engaging, beautiful, infinite, diverse. You know, these things that I crave in myself. Mm-hmm. You know, apart from the urban landscape, which is largely built on routine, transaction, transactional, monotonous, it's all just what you've got there in your, that little box of light that mm-hmm. you have a keyboard in front of that you stare at all day, mm-hmm. right? Like, I know that box. Right, right. <laughs> I'm we, in it a lot. <laughs> we're, all, we're all painfully intimate with that box. But without the monitor out here inside of the symbiont reel, it is a, it is a, there, there are truths presented that remind me of exactly the person that I want to be. Mm-hmm. And just like the battery level on our phone, we have, I, I have a battery level inside of my heart that mm-hmm. needs this juice that is only, that is only provided by, by this, by this gorgeous canopy, by this fragrant soil, by this warm sky mm-hmm. and by this gentle wind, you know, and, and the, the, between between the flowers and the birds, the wildflowers become a mountain. The mountain becomes a wildflower. Everything becomes all things, and metaphors abound as I grapple with, as you said, the existential questions and all existential dilemmas, challenges. Just be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you right on, Michelle. Thank you. Good time. So if you can, power down your box of light, put on some comfortable shoes, and get out into a landscape that's a little less built. Try to see the places where the boundaries between yourself and the living world around you start to blur, and maybe even find that you are home. I want to give the biggest thank you to Obi Kaufman for taking an entire morning to show me Mount Diablo and have this wonderful conversation with me. Thank you for generously supporting my Valentine project with your art and for believing in me and this podcast from the beginning. That has all meant the world to me. And dear listener, if you haven't done so already, don't forget to check out Obi's gorgeous set of California field atlases, which bring together the story of California in such an original and beautiful way. If you listen all the way to the end of the episode, I always tell you something interesting or embarrassing or otherwise noteworthy from my week. And this week, It's that my husband taught our six-year-old how to play a game called Dragonwood. And watching her roll the dice and then add up the numbers on her fingers is everything. And she gives her little sister all the lucky ladybug cards to play with. And I would see this and say, my life is complete. But I think maybe it's just going to keep getting better from here. Okay, that's all for this week. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called Ida Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to the song as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.